Let's turn in God's Word this evening to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. text for this sermon is the final four verses of Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. Let's read this chapter, first of all, in its entirety. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember that ye, being in time past, Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. 
We stop our reading of God's Word at that point. May God bless the reading of His Holy Scriptures unto your hearts. The text for the sermon is, as I said, verses 19 through 22, focusing especially on verses 20 and 21, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, there are several different figures that are used in the New Testament Scriptures to help illustrate for us the reality of God's church. There is the figure that the Scriptures use of a bride to describe the church. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom, and we who are the members of the church are that bride. And when the Scripture employs that figure, it is conveying unto us the closeness and the intimacy of that relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Another figure that the Scriptures use is that of the body. Jesus is the head, and we are the members of the body. And that relationship shows to us the authority that Jesus has over the church. Even as the head rules over the body, so Jesus Christ governs His church. But there's a third figure that the Scriptures use which speak to us of the relationship between Jesus and His church. And that is of a building. A physical building that is being constructed is the figure which points to the spiritual reality of the church. Jesus is the cornerstone. And it's on that cornerstone that the church is built up. Anyone who has the least amount of familiarity with construction knows that there are certain stages or steps in the construction process. First, there is the excavating, remove the soil, then there's the laying of the foundation, then there is the construction of the walls and the roof, and then at last you move in, you habitat that home. These verses that we consider this evening follows that progression. First, we're going to consider what is the foundation of the home, looking especially at verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And then we'll look at the construction of this home, this building, looking at verse 21, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple. And then finally, he said you need to move in, you need need to habitat that home, verse 22, in whom ye also are builded together for an 
habitation of God through the Spirit. A building fitly framed. We use that as our theme. First, her foundation. Second, her construction. Third, her habitation. According to this text, the church of Jesus Christ is built upon a foundation. This foundation is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Any homeowner knows the importance of there being a sturdy foundation. It is the responsibility of the foundation to hold the weight of the home, the many, many tons of weight from that home, which press down upon that foundation securely in place. If the foundation is not rigid or solid, then it presents all sorts of complications later on. They might not become immediately evident. You might not know it if you purchase a home that's built upon a poor foundation. But then as time goes on, if there are weaknesses in that foundation, it will become evident throughout the house. At first, it might simply be superficial things that are noticed. You see some cracks in the drywall where the home has settled in one area more than what it's settled in a different area. But then if the settling of that foundation gets worse, then it's not just superfluous matters, but then doorways might go out of square. And so you can no longer shut the door. And then in the worst case situation, there could be a total failure of the foundation to hold up the weight of the home, in which case then the whole home comes down. Jesus Christ illustrated this in the well-known figure of the, the, the foolish man who built his house upon the foundation of sand And the wind came, and the rains came down. And as the storms beat against this home, beat on the sand, it collapsed. And great was the fall of it. What then is worthy of being the foundation of God's church? What is strong enough to bear up under the weight of all of the people of God? What can resist the forces of this world that would beat against the church, that would seek to hurt the church, put the church out of square, or perhaps even result in a total collapse of the church as she is instituted upon this earth. According to this text, the foundation of the church is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now we must understand this carefully when the apostle says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, it does not mean that the foundation itself is the apostles and the prophets. The church is not built upon Peter 
and upon Paul. That's not the idea here. That's the Roman Catholic's understanding that the church is built upon these very men. But rather, when the text teaches that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the idea is that it's built upon the foundation that was laid by the apostles and the prophets. God called these apostles and these prophets. He put them in special office in the early New Testament church. And God used these men in their ministry to lay the foundation of the New Testament church. The foundation that was laid was the instruction that they gave. That's what both apostles and prophets do. They teach. An apostle is one who is sent by God, commissioned by Jesus Christ himself to bring his word. Galatians 1 verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. An apostle, or a prophet rather, is one who bubbles over, who has been filled with the knowledge of God, who loves Jehovah God, and who cannot contain that zeal that he has for Jehovah God, and thus, like the boiling pot of water, bubbles over with the good news. The apostles and the prophets were used by God to lay the church's foundation. What an incredible responsibility was given by God unto these men. He laid down the many different aspects of this one foundation. They laid down foundational truths regarding God. God is the holy three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He laid down the foundational truths regarding the sonship of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is fully God, equal unto God with respect to His power and divinity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. These apostles and prophets laid not only the foundational truths of the divinity of Jesus Christ, but they laid as well the foundational truth of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Like unto us in all points, sin accepted, flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone, tempted in all points like as we are. They laid down the foundational truths regarding the nature of man. Who am I? Sobering answer given to that. Ephesians 2 verse 1. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. They laid not only the foundational truths of who we are by nature, but they laid as well the foundational truths of who we are in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 5, 
even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. He taught about the only hope that man has for the deliverance of his sins. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. All of these foundational truths the apostles and the prophets laid as they went about bringing the word of God unto his people. This generally then is the foundation, and yet the text becomes more specific in describing this foundation. For the text speaks of a cornerstone built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We don't use cornerstones very often in construction anymore with modern concrete that we pour. It's not necessary to have a cornerstone. There might be an honorary stone that's put in for the sake of putting the year that this building was constructed on it. But it's not so necessary for the physical structure itself. But historically, cornerstones had a very important place in the construction of the home. The cornerstone would be the very first aspect of the foundation that was set in place. So before you would lay all the other stones of the foundation, you first had to have this cornerstone set in place. In order to set that cornerstone in place, you needed to know how large the building was going to be. You needed to know what orientation, what direction the building would be set at. You needed to know what forces that foundation would be required to resist. Is there going to be frost that will heave up the foundation? Are there going to be strong winds that beat against this building and it's expected of the foundation that it's going to be strong enough to hold that foundation in place? Oftentimes the cornerstone was the largest stone, the most prominent one in the building. And then all of the other foundations, all the other foundational stones would fit around this cornerstone. The text tells us that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. All of the other aspects of this building fit around and are centered on Jesus Christ. From eternity, God had in view the construction of His church, and God anticipated that His church would be built up upon Jesus Christ. God knew what sort of forces the church would have to face on this earth. God knew what evil there would be, what temptations the members of the church would face. God knew as well the sins of the members of His church. How they would not love Him as they ought. But how they would become guilty 
as they stood before him. God knew as well, not only that the church would become guilty, but that the church would have her sins paid for. There must be someone who is strong enough to bear up under the weight of God's own wrath. As God poured out upon this individual the weight of the soul-crushing weight of his wrath for sins that were committed against him. And the wisdom of God is this, that the one who would have the strength, the love, the ability to bear up under the wrath of God for the sins of his people would be Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself, the text says, being the chief cornerstone. Not Jesus Christ plus man's righteousness. Not Jesus Christ plus anyone else. But Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the prominent stone that is set in place by God the master builder. Jesus Christ is the glorious one who is to be adored and who is to be worshipped. Without Jesus Christ, there is no foundation. And without Jesus Christ, there is no church. As we consider this foundation, beloved, let us note that the text tells us that Jesus is the foundation. Jesus Christ Himself being the cornerstone. The text does not say that Jesus Christ someday will become the cornerstone. It's not wistful thinking. It's not something that we hope will come to pass someday that Jesus will be the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone, the perfect cornerstone. Let us not attempt to lay again the church's foundation. The struggle that we can have is to have a proper view of the church. At times we can look at the church and we see the individual members that are found in the church. We see the blemishes of this individual, the flaws and the weaknesses of that family. And then we see as well our own sins and how we have broken God's law. And we can become so discouraged in looking at the church as she is found upon this earth that one might think it's time, as it were, to take out the jackhammer and start over. Destroy the very foundations and find something different to start fresh with. As we evaluate the church and consider the other members of the church, let us never take our eyes off that chief cornerstone, which is Jesus. To be sure, as long as the church remains on this earth, there are going to be imperfections in the church, weaknesses and blemishes 
in the church as she is revealed, and yet let us not criticize the foundation. The foundation is steadfast. The church is built up on that foundation. Her construction is described for us in the 21st verse, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. All the building, and it's not referring here to all different buildings as if there are several buildings, but it's a reference here to all the parts of one building. In order to put up a, a home, you have to have countless different items. You have to have the two-by-fours, plywood, siding, insulation, the shingles for the roof, nails, so many different pieces that are required to hold a building together. When a child drives by a construction site and sees the pile of raw material that's sitting there that's to be used for the construction of the home, the child might not understand what that pile of material is. So the child asks Mom or Dad, what is that? And then Dad and Mom must explain to the child that, well, there's going to be a home that's constructed there. You can't see it yet, but they're going to take all those two-by-fours and those boards, and they're going to nail and glue and screw them together, and eventually it will start to look like a home. Well, the same, beloved, is true with regard to the church. All of the building... According to this verse, all this building is fitly framed together. There are many different aspects of this one building of Jesus Christ. And at times, the various individual members of the church can look nothing like one unified building. There's all the people in the church with all of their diversities. Viewed naturally, the people of the church in no way resemble a unified whole. There's the effects of Babylon, which continue to this present day. There are different languages, cultures, and interests. There are rich and there are poor, male and female. Verse 19 speaks of strangers. Strangers and foreigners. That's how we can feel sometimes as we relate to the church. Sometimes we feel like strangers and foreigners, that we hardly fit in in the church. Now the work of God through Jesus Christ is He takes all these different members of the church and He fitly frames them together. Fitly frame means that they are united together. They are joined together with an unbreakable bond. The construction worker knows the importance of there being strong joints. If your boards are not joined 
together well, then that creates a weak point in the structure. So you have to make sure that your joints are stable. Jesus Christ takes the church and he frames this building together in such a way that the members of the church cannot be broken apart one from another. How amazing it is that Jesus Christ performs this work. How is it possible to take such a diverse church and unite them together? How do you get Jews and Gentiles to be fitly framed together? How do you get bond and free, male and female, rich and poor, strangers and foreigners, and unite all of these members together in one unified building? Politicians try to unite people together, try to encourage the people that if you stand with me and support my cause, then there will be success and you will prosper as a nation. And yet how often do not these promises fall short? How do you frame together all of the aspect of the building. Text tells us it's on the foundation. Verse 20, and are built on the foundation. In whom, verse 21, in whom all the building fitly framed together This is where and this is how God builds up His church. It's on top of the foundation. The church is built in connection with Jesus Christ. Never divorced from Christ. Never on another foundation. But always upon the foundational truths which were laid by the apostles and the prophets. This relates then to what we heard in the sermon this morning about holding fast the faithful word. This text as well calls us to cling unto that word that has been delivered unto the church by the apostles and the prophets. As God builds up this church, there is development. The church is not stagnant. The church does not remain the same, but the church develops from one generation unto the next. Remember the children driving by that construction site? At first they couldn't make out that it's going to be a home. But then the walls go up, the frame goes up, and then the plywood is wrapped around that home and more and more that it resembles a home. Well, so it is for the church. As the church is built up on the foundation of Jesus Christ, she more and more resembles a building. She develops. And what is the development of the church but this? She becomes holy. Framed together, She groweth unto an holy temple 
in the Lord. That's the development and that's the growth of the church. She's becoming holier. We don't always like that standard, do we? There are times where we wish that the church could be built up in a different way. Would it be the case that the church would be built up by adding more numbers, more people? Let that be the barometer by which the growth of the church, the health of the church is measured, whether or not people are being added to the pews. Or maybe some would have it that the growth of the church ought to be determined by the financial and physical well-being of the members of the church. Is the church financially stable? Okay, then the church is being built up. No, according to the Word of God, she is built up. She groweth unto an holy temple. And sometimes holiness hurts as God drives away, burns away the dross and purifies this building. Always God is at work, building and building, drawing us ever closer unto that foundation upon which we are built. And then, according to the 22nd verse, this building is inhabited, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Do you notice who dwells in this home? It doesn't say that the ones who, as it were, move into this home are you and me, though it's true that God's people are there. But do you see who habitats this home? It's God. It's habitation of God. God is building you up so that God can dwell in you. It's an amazing thought. This is what God has been doing throughout the history of His church. Building her up more and more, making her a holy temple where God Himself by His Holy Spirit can dwell. A habitation is a home, a dwelling place, a permanent dwelling place. It's not as if God lacked a home. It's not as if God didn't have a place that He could call His dwelling place. But the reality is that God desired a home. He chose a home, and the home that he chose was you, the members of his church. You, the text says, in whom you also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. 
as the church stands in comparison to the world and the institutions of the world and the power of the world, the church is very small in comparison. But let us not permit thoughts of the smallness of the church as she is in comparison to this earth to take away from the wonder that the church is God's home. You, who are strangers and foreigners, you, who by nature were dead in trespasses and sins, you, who were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, you, God has chosen and brought you into, unto Himself on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, we thank Thee that Thou hast called us out of darkness and brought us into the light of the gospel Will Thou, Father, continue graciously and powerfully building up Thy church, preserving her, so that not even the gates of hell can prevail against her. Bless and keep us in the week that is ahead of us, that Thou guard us from all evil and harm, and forgive us our sins for Jesus' sake. Amen.